Stay. 
If you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Lord, we do um, cry out to you this morning and acknowledge that you are our vision. Help us to allow you to be our vision. May we welcome you, Lord, as our vision, as the one who has plans and purposes for us. May we, may our hearts be open this morning to receive your word, to receive your um, what it is that you desire to speak with, speak to us this morning, Lord. We just acknowledge, Lord, that you are the anchor of our souls, that you are the anthem of our hearts, that your love is never-ending, and your purposes for us are always good and true. And we just thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are faithful to us, Lord. We just acknowledge that there is no God like you, that you alone are God. So again, Lord, I just pray for our hearts to be open, to receive what it is that you have for us this morning, Lord, that you would give us your heart and your eyes to see, that we would allow you to be our vision. And I pray for Conrad, Lord Jesus, I pray that as he... As he shares the word, Lord, that you have for us this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would give him clarity in his voice and in his mind, that he would be able to keep his eyes fixed and focused on you, the author and perfecter of his faith, and the one who has downloaded this message and who will speak this message through Conrad this morning. So I just pray for your courage and your boldness to be upon Conrad. I thank you for the anointing that you've given him to speak to us at this time, Lord, for this season. I pray for your protection as a shield around him, Lord, both now as he delivers this word and in the week to come. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to speak through Conrad to us. May we be receptive receptive of receiving that in Jesus' name. Amen. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart this morning and ever be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Heidi, for praying for me this morning. And welcome all of you who are watching here or are participating here or participating live this morning on, on, as we stream or uh, we'll do so later. This morning's message is entitled, Why I Don't Want to Come Back to Church, a Pastor's Confession. Believe it or not, this message is really part of a series. It's part of a series that goes back to Pentecost, where I preached a message called Pentecost, Peace and the Police, and last week a message on, I've gone off the deep end, but the water is just fine in here. This morning's message draws from the book of Acts chapter 2 and also chapter 4. And I want to say, first of all, that my heart in preparing this message and in preaching this message comes out of really Psalm 24, where it felt like the Lord kept bringing me back to Psalm 24 this week. 
Um, and I wasn't sure why. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Who may dwell uh, in his sanctuary, those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who may go up to his holy hill. But it's the end of that passage that I've never quite gotten before that I got in a new way this, this week. It, it has to do with the gates, um, raising your heads, O ye gates, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. And as I, as I reflected and meditated and prayed this week, it became clear to me that we in the church, we who are God's people, get, get to welcome the King of glory in. As I've said in, in previous messages recently, it's not that the Spirit is, hasn't come, it's, it's have we come. That is, we are gatekeepers for the Spirit. We either allow the Spirit's presence to, to rule and reign among us, or we don't. We open our hearts or we don't. And so my motivation this morning in what is a fairly somber message, I have to acknowledge as I prepared it, is that we would be gates that open to the Holy Spirit. The way we see in Acts chapter 2, uh, the church after Pentecost, that we would be gates, ancient gates perhaps, that open up the way for the glory of the Lord to be prepared. I've talked a lot recently about Isaiah 40, and that we are on this grand excavation project to create a highway to Mount Zion. This is very similar. What is the excavation work that God would have us to do in this congregation during this time of resetting as we're preparing to reassemble? Some of you are asking, when are we going back to church? When are we going back to church? And I just want to say we will come back to church, but we are in the process with the board. The board is doing tremendous work this week and this past week and in the coming week to really asking the questions, God, how are you calling us to be different? How are you calling us to open our gates more widely to your spirit? How are you calling us to open our gates more widely to your mission? How are you calling us to open our gates more widely to one another? Because in Acts chapter 2 and 4, we really see those themes reiterated. When I say I don't want to come back to church, I have to say that I feel some of that, in fact. Oh, I know I shouldn't say that kind of thing, and I know it raises lots of questions. But somewhere along the line, folks, if we are going to become anything like the book of the church in the book of Acts chapter 2 and 4, we're going to have to become a little bit more honest, a little bit more authentic, and a little bit more transparent. Because I can tell you that our children are growing up and seeing right through us. That when we are not honest, authentic, and real, they are seeing through us, and many of them are opting out of the church that we've created. Precisely because they don't experience the kind of honesty that I'm trying to express this morning. And if I care about that, then I have to begin by being honest myself. Oh, I could get very excited about coming back to a church that reads like that in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4, that we're going to look at in a few moments. I could get excited if I knew that we were even halfway committed to becoming that kind of church. And on that note, I want to say I'm optimistic based on the responses we've received from you over the last number of weeks in the resetting questionnaire, the work the board is doing, we are doing serious questions at looking at, God, how are you calling us to reset to become more the people you've created us to be in this time? And so I'm very optimistic about how we are listening to God and where God is going to call us to change and uh, to, to grow as a congregation. So I'm going to encourage you not to be impatient, but to wait as God continues to work among your leaders to say, how are you resetting us in the season? Because this is a unique time. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to stop and say, God, what would you have us change? Because most of the time, we are so busy with our lives, and we're just moving, 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 and we don't stop and reflect. 
personally or as a church, about these questions. And once we start reassembling, it's going to be too late. We're going to, everything that's fluid now is going to become solid. And if we're not clear about the changes God is calling us to make, we will just go back to the way things were. And the way things were, some of it was good, but the way things were also need to change. I'd like to ask you to turn, if you have your Bible with me, to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And we're going to look at how the early church is reflected in these very few verses at the end of both of these chapters. Because these very few verses give us a window into what church was like in the immediate aftermath of the Holy Spirit's coming. And what God has the potential, what we have the potential to be as we continue to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit who has come. And as I preached last week, chapter 2, verse 42. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as they had need. Every day, every day, They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What strikes me is how all-encompassing, all-encompassing this fellowship was, all-encompassing this communion was, this time together as they hung out together in the Holy Spirit's presence, fellowshipping together with one another, eating, drinking together, spending every day together, and sacrificing themselves for one another, selling property so that everybody was mutually on the same page. And what's interesting to me, too, is that there's no notion that there were programs to do mission. People were drawn to this kind of thing. People were drawn to a people who were rejoicing, who were seeing God's Spirit move, who were seeing deliverance, who were seeing fellowship, who were seeing this kind of communion. People were added to them daily. At the end of chapter 4 in Acts 2, we read this, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. I want you to think about that for a moment in the world that we live in. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to be to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money forth from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed as anyone had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought, it to the, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I didn't realize in some ways how dissatisfied I was with the way we've constructed church until we stopped assembling together in March. Not discontent or disillusioned with what church can be and what Christ calls it to be, but rather what we, like so many churches, have created church to be. In so many ways, not what God intended it to be. 
And when I'm saying church, I'm speaking broadly of the church in the West, particularly in the U.S., where we, but also those characteristics that flow into our own congregation that are similar to so many other churches. And I say this as one who, as with Heidi, has led about 15 of the last 21 years. So if there's any fingers to point, they should be pointed at me. This is a personal confession as much as anything. As I shared last Sunday, there has been within me a kind of conversion over the past five weeks where I have met the Holy Spirit in a new way on the back porch of our house and experienced more than ever the deep, deep love of God. And so I think part of my restlessness comes out of this own transformation that I was not expecting. But at many, several times throughout the last months, I have said, if we're not converted to Jesus in this season, we may never be. I didn't know I was speaking about myself, but there was a new conversion that I have experienced out of which is flowing some of this discontent that I'm sharing this morning. Because church in the United States is by and large a place to which we drive. A place we choose because we like the preacher, the people, and the worship. Like anything else in our consumer society, we purchase the products of the church that we like. In the same way, we choose our favorite restaurant, good service, good food, cheap. Or our gas station, good service, good gas, cheap. Or our insurance, good service, good insurance, cheap, and on and on and on. These are individual choices based on what I as an individual prefer. And when the service of the church I'm at, the preaching, the worship, the relationships, no longer come cheap and actually begin to cost me something, or when I simply don't feel it anymore, I move on to the church that's on the other side of town where things are always greener. We switch churches in this country like we switch cars. The saints come marching in only to march right back out. It's the saints' version of musical chairs. At least we're staying in shape while we're doing it. We're driven by one question. What do I like? What do I want? And who do I agree with? And when I find that, I settle down until I no longer like them, want them, or agree with them. Churches have become for us like cable news channels. Silos where I go where everyone agrees until we don't agree and then out the door we go once again. Church is a place I go to and I get what I want rather than a people that it was in the book of Acts in Acts 2 and 4, rather than a people I belong to. It's a place where the question becomes more what's in it for me and less what's in it of God and what's in it for others that I can grow and contribute to. And I want to challenge us as we reassemble, some of us are going to see this whole COVID-19 thing very differently. And I want to plead with you to not come back and allow this to be one more thing that divides us, but to honor one another. What honors each other in this? What does the other need? Not what are my rights? How do I defend myself? What do I get to do? But how do I honor the other who's sitting beside me? What do they need from me? As a pastor, I'm aware that every Sunday I risk saying something that will contribute to some more saints marching out the door. Because every Sunday, I know that I say something that's going to offend somebody. If I didn't, I wouldn't be preaching the gospel. The gospel is incredibly offensive if we actually take time to listen to it and believe it to be true. In all of this switching of churches, which is, it happens to be a very American habit of going to church, by the way, God's mission to the world is usually not the criteria we use to determine where we go to church. Because for most of us, God's mission is the last thing we have in our mind. 
It's hard to focus on the mission of God when we're so busy looking for the church that makes us feel better than the last one did. Folks, church is not a place. It's why I have been saying over and over again, we're not going to reopen church. Our church has never been closed. We're just not assembling together, but we're still the church. We still remain the people of God together. And one of the things we do as the people of God when we assemble is to encourage one another. The book of Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews makes that clear. Don't forsake assembling, but encourage one another. There's something that we have the potential to do when we assemble that we don't when we're disassembled. I'm just not sure that we do it very well. I think we often show up and discourage one another rather than actually encourage one another. And so I'm not willing to come back to a church where the place is most important thing or where I and other ministers are under constant pressure to keep the buffet fully stocked with the freshest and finest and cheapest goods and services of the church or to make sure I preach what is not offensive to folks. I will always preach what I believe after prayer and time with God he is calling me to preach. Because one day I will give account to one person to one being, and that is God himself. And I will be alone when I do that. None of you will be with me. Not only has church become a place for us, we've made it a place to perform. It's a performance, like a theater. We walk into a sanctuary where the chairs are neatly facing the front, which means all of us are looking at the behind of the one in front of us. I mean, other than elevators and concerts and theaters, where do we turn around to make the other one look at the back of our head and our behind? Nowhere other than in the church. We say it's rude if we did that anywhere else. Child, turn around, face them, look them in the eyes, but not in church. I don't know about you, but it's pretty hard to fellowship when all you can see is the back of the person in front of you. The preacher alone gets this glorious privilege of seeing the saints' faces, and glorious they are most days, but the privilege should not be just the preachers. We should all get to look into one another's eyes. Otherwise, how will we ever know how we're doing? Is she crying over there? Is he chuckling over there? Is she being moved by God's Spirit over there? No one will ever know because no one will ever see our face except the preacher, and he or she is usually too busy avoiding faces to really look at them seriously. Do you realize that we can go to church and never really look into one another's eyes? Do you realize we can go to church and really not see one another? That we can go to church and avoid one another most of the time if we really want to, because most of the time we're just looking at the backs of each other? But we must like it this way, or we would do something to change it. And then there's the service that we create. It's arranged just so, so that no one is ever surprised, including the Holy Spirit. The whole thing is pretty well staged, and in fact, as you can see this morning, I'm standing on the stage just to reinforce the fact that we're staging the whole deal. But this is not what we read of the early church in the book of Acts. What we read instead is, quote, every day, not two hours on Sunday, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All of the believers were one in heart and mind. What do we hear in this, these passages? Every day doing life together. Every day doing life together. Eating and drinking and finding joy in their fellowship and their praising of God. Making sure that everybody's needs were met. Physical, material, spiritual, emotional. 
and all being of one heart and mind. There was a direct connection between their experience of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and how they became church. And part of our biggest problem is that we have so far removed ourselves from the awareness and presence of the Holy Spirit that we have created church that doesn't even look very close to what that early church did. What strikes me about these verses, these few short verses, is that they don't sound anything like place or performance. But we are capable of doing church differently here at E-Town Mennonite. For example... I've never been to a family night where we sat looking at each other's behinds. Why? Because eating is a human activity. Spectating is not. Eating happens face to face, eyeball to eyeball. Eating forces me to let my guard down a bit while I shove that dangling noodle into my wide open mouth and you can see my cavities. Or to drop some soup on my shirt to show that I'm not the most coordinated eater at the table. Or to take a drink of water that misses my mouth and runs down my chin and on and on. Folks, when we're eating together, we can't pretend because eating is real, spectating is not. Eating is a human activity, and it's one of the most meaningful activities we do together. I don't think it should surprise us that the book of Acts 2 and 4 says they were eating and drinking together. They were being human beings together. They were being authentic together. Eating together and drinking together is one of the most authentic, real things we can do. It's why after a funeral and someone passes away, we eat together to say to each one to one another, we're going to be all right. We're going to move on. Life is going to continue. Eating and drinking is one of the great or one of the greatest symbols that we're going to continue being human beings together. When we visit one another, we almost always offer someone something to eat or to drink. Because to do that is to be human. To do that is to care for the other. To do that is to have compassion on the other. And yet, in our new building that's been newly renovated, we've had to debate whether we can even take beverages into the sanctuary. And so far, we've decided we can't. Until we stop looking at the behind of the other and start allowing ourselves to eat and drink together, we will never be authentic, genuine human beings with one another and we'll never let our guards down. If we have to be so careful as to protect the carpet and the chairs, then we are never going to stop being careful about protecting ourselves and our reputations, and we're never going to be authentic and genuine with one another. Because when I look across the table at you, I see the face of God. I see the face of God made in God's image, the imprint of God upon you. Our faces tell us everything about who we are. It's why some of us struggle with Zoom, because we can see, but we can't really see. But face to face, we see who the other is, and we learn something of them we can't see otherwise, and we learn something of God in them. When we eat together, we see a brother or sister who is making themselves vulnerable enough with me to allow me to see that they just might make a mess of themselves. In the early part of our ministry in 2001 or 2000 or 2001, Fred Martin expressed concern that we did not fellowship enough in our congregation. And so Heidi and I initiated Family Night. And nearly 20 years later, I think we'd all agree that it's one of the most meaningful, enduring events that we've ever initiated in the last several decades. And the beauty is on Family Night, there's no performance. 
We come as we are from where we are. We eat together, we visit together, we share stories together. And what happens that folks, what, that, what happens that evening, folks, is just as much church as what's happening right now this morning, if not more so. Why? Because we are being real with one another in the presence of the one who is always real with us and who loves hanging out and loved hanging out over a meal with just about anybody who would eat with him. I also love the fact that we come to family night without the pressure to do a lot of religious programming. It drives me a little crazy when the saints insist that every time we gather, we have to throw, through, uh, through by, uh, we have to throw a few Bible verses out just to sanctify the event. As if Jesus' presence himself is not enough to sanctify that event. I want to tell several stories that help to illustrate some of what I'm sharing. That from my perspective are Acts 2 and 4 stories, but they're contemporary stories. I spent a wonderful weekend with my brothers Philip and Greg this weekend in Florida, hoping to find uh, some tarpon, um, which are a huge sport fish in Florida, but all we found were three to five foot waves in a small boat, and we were awfully glad Jesus was in that boat, um, and we headed back to shore. But we had wonderful conversations about church. My brother Phil and his wife Jen attend a large church in Charlotte, North Carolina, where during this time of disassembly, their life group continues to meet in the parking lot of the church with their lawn chairs and to fellowship and listen to the sermon together. They're the only ones in the whole church of a thousand people that show up in the parking lot. And they're not showing up to just be legalistic about going to church. They're showing up because they love being together. They love their life group. They hang out together and they help one another and they share in projects and on and on. And they're loving this time of gathering together in the parking lot, listening to the sermon. Because as it turns out, they're not only listening, they're also engaging with one another about the sermon. What did he say? Did he really say that? Can you believe he said that? I wonder what he meant by that, and on and on. And then they'll visit for 25 or 30 minutes after the message, and Phil told one of the pastors recently, kind of tongue-in-cheek, we might just stay out here when we start to come back again. Do you see the difference between gathering as spectators to watch an event as compared to gathering with the expectation that we all have something to contribute to this assembly together. I regularly tell my students, and I have for decades, that the information I share with them doesn't flow from their heads to their hearts unless they get their voice on the table. And so I work really hard in the early part of the semester to say, get your voice on the table. We need your voice. Because your voice, when we speak, stuff actually moves from our heads to our hearts. And we also learn from one another. Most of the best, the best learning my students have comes not from what I speak to them, but what they hear from one another. It may be related to what I share, but it's their regurgitation of it, their listening together by which we learn. Saints, we work out our salvation by engaging with one another around the scripture and in prayer, and we would be growing a lot more quickly in our life with Christ and with God if we did that more as a church together and didn't just show up to listen to me. One of the highlights that I hear from you over and over again in the last three months, and it came out in the questionnaire so clearly that the board looked at and the ministry team looked at over the last several weeks, is that you are loving the intergenerational Zoom conversation that occurs after this at 11 o'clock. That came up over and over and over again. This loving this time together on Zoom, talking about the sermon. And frankly, I've enjoyed it too. Why? Because I think there is as much church happening then as there is now, if not more so. This new opportunity 
to be intergenerational together, sharing with one another about the sermon, means that the sermon is going deeper into our lives, and it's also having greater breadth across the church. The impact of the messages is greater personally and corporately. It has brought in folks who were not part of a Sunday school class before. It's allowed a cross-generational conversation that helps us to grow spiritually. Our current Sunday school system, and we're talking about this now as ministers and as a board, but as valuable as some of its aspects are, has also developed a kind of staleness that this new experience has brought to light. And this will certainly be an area that we want to consider continuing in the future. Finding an avenue for us as people of God to meaningfully engage in the message across the generations. What did you hear? What is God saying to you? What did you disagree with? Why did you disagree? That's how we grow and that's how we learn. And that's a church I look forward to returning to. I also received a text from one of you Friday evening that I would just say was golden. And I've received permission from this individual to share it. The text went like this. I woke up at 3.30 a.m. with a vision or a word that came to me just simply ownership. My spiritual growth and relationship with God cannot be passed on to a congregation or a pastor, but I rather must own it. I must seek a personal and deep relationship with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis and not wait for a Sunday gathering. I think my question to those of you who are saying, when are we going to meet, is, are you developing deeper depth during this time in your life with God? Because the more we do that individually, the more corporately we bring, and the more corporately we get out of what we bring. If we are just waiting for Sunday to fill us up, we are missing most of what God has to share with us. This individual is taking advantage, as actually many of you are, and it comes up in the questionnaires time and time again. I'm spending more time with God. I'm going deeper with God. And I just want to say, amen. I suppose this sounds like common sense, this person said, but it seems counter to the verbal desires of assembling on Sunday. Prior to COVID-19, did we ask ourselves, why do we gather on Sunday? And has that answer changed since we, as we consider coming back? I think of the early disciples as they gathered. Was it once a week on Sunday, or were they accepting the Spirit in their lives on a daily basis? While we do help each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, I must hold myself accountable to growing closer to Christ. Then this person discussed their experience of going to college and noted that they enjoyed the comfort of blending in to the on-site courses and the camaraderie of classmates um, but the real work came, this person said, when they, had to, when they had to step out of the class, when they had to become accountable for their own growth and their own time. That is far more difficult than just showing up. And the same thing applies, this individual's making the application, to church. It's one thing to show up at church. It's another thing to live six days in the week applying what I've learned at church. That's what makes us Christian. Showing up to church doesn't make us Christian. Living out Jesus' teaching makes us Christian. We become Christians by receiving His grace. But we, be, we become disciples, true disciples, true Christians, by living out faithfully what He teaches. My response to this text is, if this is the only text of feedback I ever receive again as a pastor, it's going to be enough. 
For there it is. This individual nailed it. I've said repeatedly, time and time again over the last eight years, if you're not developing a life with God yourself, spending time in the scripture and in prayer and just sitting with God, when a crisis comes into your life, there's only so much anybody can do to help you. There's only so much any of us as ministers can do to help you. And there is coming a day when you will be alone with God, whether in this life or on, in, as you wait for the next. And if we haven't learned to enjoy his presence now alone, it's unlikely that we're going to feel very comfortable in those moments of aloneness, which do come and will come. But how the Lord rejoices at a testimony like the saint gave. The Lord is always ready and willing to meet us when we show up for him. He is waiting for us. As I've said before and even this morning, the Holy Spirit has come, folks. The only question for us is whether we will come. This business, and I want you to listen closely to how we so often pray. This business of praying that, God, will you meet us today? Holy Spirit, will you show up today? Is a distorted theology. It's, it's, it's not biblical. Asking God to show up is not biblical. It's not scriptural. It sounds more like the worshipers of Baal who danced and sliced and diced themselves around the altar praying for, for fire and believing and wondering whether Baal would ever show up. Our God has showed up. We don't ever have to worry about that. We don't ever have to pray, God, will you come to us? He has come to us. The question is always, are we open to his coming? Are we coming to him? And what we do when we pray this way is we put the responsibility back on God. And so we can go home from church and we say, well, God didn't show up again this morning. Holy Spirit wasn't there this morning. I don't know what's wrong with God. I don't know where he's at. I guess we just have to pray harder and hope he shows up next time. Maybe if we're lucky, he will. But until then, I'll live however I want because he didn't show up. It's not God's responsibility. The work is done once and for all on the cross. That's very clear. Once and for all at Pentecost. And folks, this is not just a subtle difference in language that I'm picking up on. Language is huge because it reflects what we believe. And if we believe we have to pray for God to show up, then we believe he's not here right now. And I, for one, don't believe that at all. What we say reflects what we believe, and it reinforces for our children what we believe. When they hear us praying that, God, will you show up, they're assuming God's not there. Our children grow up thinking that God is out there somewhere when in fact he's done everything he can to show us that he is here now, that he is with us, that we are not orphans, that we have an advocate, that we need no other, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, any moment, and he is there. We're not crying out so he comes. We're crying out because we recognize his presence. Daddy, Father. And so the Spirit has come to this congregation already, folks. And I hope that when we reassemble, we come with our hearts wide open to the Holy Spirit. Each and every Sunday, each and every Wednesday, each and every time we gather, every board meeting, every ministry team meeting, every practice, whatever we do, that we come recognizing that the Spirit is with us and all we are doing is opening ourselves to that Spirit. If we do that, we will be changed and we will change the world around us. And that's a church I look forward to coming back to. Finally, as an exercise this week, to illustrate the title of this message, I got in touch with five young adults, six young adults, all who have former or current connections to our congregation, nearly all who grew up here. Some of them go to church, some of them don't. 
But I want to emphasize these are our children. These aren't strangers. And as I knew they would, that's one of the reasons I love them so much, is they answered honestly. They didn't put on a mask. They didn't tell me what they thought I'd want to hear. They told me the truth. And what they told me reflects what they learned from us. I think as parents and grandparents, it's so easy to say, well, our children were influenced by the college they went to. They were influenced by the world they entered. You know what? They were influenced, first of all, by us. If we didn't prepare them to enter that world and remain faithful to Christ, then that's not on them. That's on us. And it remains on us. And if we think our current children aren't going to grow up and half of them not attend church or have a life with God, and some of these do have a life with God but don't attend church, and there is a difference, we're fooling ourselves. That's why I'm so intent upon what changes God would you have us make so that our children and grandchildren want to know Jesus, want to be part of a fellowship where Jesus is at the center. One of the young people said this, for me personally, going to church is a chore. I feel like church is often a place where everyone is acting a certain way and pretending. I feel obligated to pretend too, that I'm a certain way or that I'm an ideal Christian. I feel as if the church was, if the church was more come as you are and both in actions and emotions and outward appearances, it would be more appealing for me to come. I think it would feel less like a chore. Church is often a place where you have to, be, where you have to pretend to be a way you don't act normally. Another one young person said this, I think growing up I always felt church was something I had to do, and I never developed a deep connection with it. For me and others, I think it's, it's the perception of opportunity costs associated with going to church. For example, if you want to be up late with friends, you definitely don't want to wake up early for church the next morning. Another said this, people from our generation tend to be focused on convenience. Who taught them that? They consider things with this sort of logic. How can I make my spiritual journey and relationship with God the most convenient one for me? Sunday morning church interrupts my convenience and my opportunity to do other things that are more appealing. And then they go on to say, and after all, I can have my quiet time and I can target the sermons I want. I can hear the preacher I want. I can get the worship I want. I can get what I want and I don't have to leave anywhere to get it. I can choose better for myself in my own convenient time frame rather than get up for church on Sunday. And I want you to hear this not as judgment about our young adults. They're just being honest. They are being honest with what they have experienced in church. Another said this, the church has married itself to politics that are not palatable with Christianity. And the evangelical movement has aligned itself, frankly, this person said, with that which is evil. The evangelical church does a good job of branding itself with the moral majority. The media portrays Christians as having a blind faith in God who don't agree with evidence that is tangible. You hear things like, what does climate change matter because God has a plan and the world is going to end imminently anyway. You see in the media Christians protesting abortion, but these same people don't stand up and protest the conditions that make abortion more likely for a woman to choose. You don't see them protesting the broken foster system that leads to childhood abuse and neglect. Christians show no moral outrage over family separations, treating immigrants as undesirable, refugees as undesirable, and locking children up. The problem is that people know who Christ is and what he said, but when they look at the church these days, they don't see Christians standing up for these values. Christians are not seen living the lifestyle that Jesus taught in which the least of these are the most elevated. 
Many in our generation value expert opinion and science. All of my life I was told that to believe in evolution would mean I also didn't believe anything else the Bible taught and I still wouldn't believe in God. And if that, thing, if that one belief I didn't believe, if that one thing I didn't accept, then it crumbled my entire foundation. But if our foundation is really that weak and can't stand up to science, it makes it difficult for us as young people to believe that you have to frame your views around, if we have to frame our views around one particular belief. Congregation, I hope you've heard these thoughts that are honest, that are true, and have come back to us from our children who grew up among us, and that simply reflect what we know from all of the research among evangelical youth these days. The church we have created, while it remains important to some young adults, is rapidly losing its relevance and importance to this generation more rapidly than any other generation in the past. Many young adults are fleeing the church, and before we blame them, I think it's high time we actually listen to them and validate their perspectives rather than shame them or criticize them. They are at least honest enough to articulate some things that the rest of us would like to deny or be um, unwilling to say. What is the solution? I'm going to leave you with that question and ask you to pray about it. Don't give me your answer right away. Sit with the Lord about it. What kind of church is God calling us to become? I've been podcasting a lot of my thoughts about this, some of which I agree are pretty edgy. But I believe that becoming a church that reflects more of Acts 2 and 4 would go a long way towards convincing our young adults that church might be worth trying again. And for the rest of us who are honest enough to say that we aren't sure we're ready to come back to the church we left in March, those same chapters might give us reason to hope once more. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we confess that we have so often constructed church like we've seen others construct church, like we constructed church in the past. But you have given us a kairos moment. You have given us a divine supernatural moment to stop, to look, and to pray. And to say, how in the world would you have us realign ourselves with your purposes? How in the world would you have us reset to line up with your mission? God, I pray for any resistance within us individually or corporately to doing that, that you would just remove it now in Jesus' name and that we would all be on the same page and saying, God, what is it that you are asking us to change about ourselves and about ourselves corporately. We might reflect the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, who in the Spirit's terms, shaped the church the way the Spirit knew the church needed to be shaped to fulfill the mission of God to the world that God so loved and so loves still, in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, our precious Savior and Redeemer. Amen. The response song... Um 
we're going to sing about heaven, which might seem like not, not really related to the church, but I want to encourage you to think about how heaven is like the ultimate worship service. You know, we don't, after we die, we're not going to just go to heaven on Sundays. We're not going to, um, we're probably not going to have preaching. Um, and as Conrad said, eating is a part, is something that brings us together. And I think in heaven, it's, it's the marriage supper, the marriage banquet of the Lamb. So I think there's a lot of things we can look at in heaven that we're looking forward to that can inform um, how we do church today. And, um, you know, for a lot of people think when we think too much about heaven, it might take us away from our lives today. But uh, in the Lord's Prayer, how he taught us to pray, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'd encourage you as we sing this together to think about heaven and and let that inform you how we how we look at church and our lives today. This might be a new song to many of you, but the chorus um, is from an old hymn. day of 
rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. Shout the victory. 